Welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast. I'm thrilled to join you again today. Uh, like before, I'm joined by Caleb Click and Bob Cargo, members of our teaching team here at Perimeter Church. And the whole idea behind the Digging Deeper podcast is that we want to take what we've been teaching on Sunday mornings and do just what the title of this podcast says. Dig a little deeper, uh, ask some questions that take us into spaces that we don't have time for on Sunday mornings that help us understand, hopefully, a little bit more about the topic that we're teaching, about the passages that we're teaching. And so with this one, we've been in the series over the last six weeks, the past six Sundays, um, of the glory of Christ. And so Caleb and Bob, we just want to spend some time together today thinking about um, the glory of Christ and tapping into various aspects of what does this look like in our lives practically. That's kind of the main place that I want to take us today as we as we discuss this is the glory of Christ. Uh, that word glory can feel a little bit um, maybe perhaps um, arbitrary or ambiguous or just um, out there. Like, what does that mean when we talk about the glory of God or the glory of Christ? Uh, what do we mean? What are we talking about? How do we begin to define glory? And then where I want to go from there, and we'll 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 get there eventually in this in this podcast is um, how do we how does that even begin to play into our everyday lives? What does this look like at the ground level? So anyway, let's start with that first question, guys. I, I'd love for y'all's input, and certainly I'll jump in with thoughts here and there. But when we think about glory, um, how do we? How do we define that? We've talked about that some in the series. Obviously, we've tried to give pictures of the glory of Jesus and the glory of God in the Trinity. Um, but let's let's try to dive into that a little deeper. What is what is glory, and what do we mean when we say that? What does the Bible mean when it says that? Yeah, I think the first thing I think of is is Moses's request in Exodus thirty three and thirty four, where he says to God, "You know, let me see your glory." And it's in this moment, right after Israel sinned, and God has shown. His, his grace and his kindness to them. And that request is really, it's a, it's a request to see God, who God is in his essence. Mm. He's saying, let me see you as you are um, in all of your goodness, your kindness. And in, in that particular instance, you know, God says, who am I? I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's, that's who I am. Yeah. Um, well, and that's what we see in Jesus. You know, Jesus is the glory of God revealed in human flesh. Um, it's it's God in all of His goodness and kindness and mercy, uh, enfleshed, so to speak. Mm. And and as we think about um, that glory, like I don't I don't know how it is for y'all, but I think of glory. I'm typically thinking of something um, frightening. And it seems like that it's, it's almost like the goodness of God somehow frightens people. Like yeah. it, it, Moses can't see him when he's asked. He can't see him face to face. But in Jesus, that, that goodness comes close. That glory comes close in a way that is visible and tangible and, and touchable, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, which means that we can actually know God as he is in yeah, a way think, that Moses couldn't even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it like that first sermon, first sermon of the series when you let us off, Caleb, in this mm-hmm. in the series, and you talked about John one, where that's what the Apostle John is really pressing in in those first fourteen verses. There of you know the Word became flesh, lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of a of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, so that there's this there is this glorious God of um, 
of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and we do have these pictures of his glory in the Old Testament in such a way to where it is terrifying. Yeah. You know, you think about in, in, in Exodus right there where he asked for his glory, to see his glory in Exodus 33. Um, it's also in the context of where God is very clear to say, uh, Moses, first of all, I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock where you only see the back of my glory, the yeah. back yeah, yeah. backside of my glory. Then, But then not only that, no one else can even come close to this mountain. Yeah. Right? And thunder and lightning and dark smoke and clouds and and the people, it says that the people were terrified as the glory of God was made manifest, manifest on Mount Sinai. Well, then now you have Jesus. Yeah. Who now brings the glory of God in the flesh and he's near mm-hmm. and he's close and he's full of grace and truth. Um, that's pretty profound. Like that's kind of mind blowing actually of like, you know, this is, this is, reality of what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing the glory of God to bear in a, a, a among us, right? So, um, Well, and what's astonishing, too, is that when Jesus comes, God's glory is revealed in such a way that people don't even see it. Mm. Like, it, it, it's so humble, they can't recognize it. They're, they're expecting an Isaiah 6 moment. Right. Instead, they get Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart. Yeah. And it, and they don't know what to do with that. Right. Um, they get the cross, not Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it is an inversion of all of our expectations, um, and and yet that's the place where God is most clearly seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, if you if you look at a, just a secular definition of glory, you mm-hmm. know, uh, what I found when I looked it up was that glory is high honor due to achievement and or beauty. Mm. So that's sort of a, just a secular definition. So you look at that and then apply it to Jesus. Well, okay, there's high honor, first just because of his beauty. And that speaks into what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. There's the essence of who God is, that he is so beautiful in his holiness, in uh, his purity, in his goodness, and all these things that we can't even behold him as sinners you know, and right. survive it. Uh, but there's also the honor that comes by his achievements, and that is the surprising beauty of the gospel and the beauty of God, that his achievement by which he wants to make himself known is the achievement of his goodness and his kindness and his grace in the person of, of Jesus and what he does for the salvation of sinners. And that gives him the greatest glory. So we think about, okay, who is this? Uh, what is this glory of Jesus all about? Well, there, there's the beauty of who he is in his essence, but then there's the absolute jaw-dropping beauty of his achievement of his goodness and kindness and grace to save us. So, uh, yeah, sort of a, the definition that I, I try to lean into and think about. Yeah, that's so good. You think about this, and I did something similar to you, Bob, in the sense of just kind of looked up in, in one of my apps that I have on kind of um, – uh, the Bible, and and I won't go into it, but it's a great app, actually, that I'll recommend called the Blue Letter Bible app, where you can look at the original language of of the scriptures and what are, what are some of those words getting at. But I looked it up in there like this, the word glorify and the way it's used in scripture. And so you even think about uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and that first question that is asked, which is, what is the chief, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And um, 
And as the Westminster Divines wrote this and, and, and the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism that was actually put together, you know, for children to have a better understanding of what is it that we're really trying to sum- summarize and what is it that we believe, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So again, looking up this word glorify, how it's used in Scripture, here's a few things that, that came out. is to praise, to extol, to magnify, to celebrate, to honor, uh, to adorn with luster, to clothe in splendor, to impart glory to something and render it excellent, to make it renowned, to render illustrious, and to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. So when we think about to glorify God, two parts of that answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God is to, to do all those things I just read out. Um, but then that second part, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's talk about that. How, do, how does the glory of God and then my ability to enjoy him go together? Why would they put those two together? And where do we see that perhaps even in scripture where we see that it's the enjoyment of God that, and the glory of God that is our chief end and, that, and they go together? Yeah, to me, an interesting connection between those is this, is that the Bible teaches that for those of us that are saved— that salvation will end in glorification. We're justified, we're adopted, we're in the process of being sanctified, saved from the power of sin. Someday we're going to be glorified. But what is to drive us, if I look at the Bible as I think I see it correctly, what is supposed to drive us is not the vision of my own glorification. That is not the thing that gets me most excited. It is good news. I get to be justified and declared not guilty from the penalty of sin. I'm in the process of being sanctified and set free from the power of sin. And someday when Jesus returns, I'll be glorified and set free from even the presence of sin. But the the, the vision, the uh, ultimate goal of my own living in glory is not the thing that drives me. It, the thing that's to drive me is to see Christ glorified, it, for him to be magnified, for him to be raised up, and needs to be the thing that, that pushes me. And I think very honestly for a lot of people, they're first, they are first saved with the hope of what the gospel will do for them. Mm. But if there's real salvation, if they really have been converted, somewhere along the way, I believe, the toggle switch goes over the other way. And what drives them is not the hope of my own deliverance. Yeah. It is the 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 praise of my Savior. Yeah. Mm. And it translates into a love for him that I'm really just taken with him so much that I enjoy him. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy my communion with him. I enjoy the idea of him being magnified. And that's more important to me than anything else. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think I think you're hitting on the, the right thing there, Bob. I think as we're talking about this idea of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, it, it, in some ways it's its the Genesis 1 and 2 reality that we fell from, but that Christ has redeemed us into. Um, we, we were created in God's image in order that we would reflect His glory. That in the, in the way, in the manner in which we lived our lives, in the way that we engage with the world, we would reflect Him and spread His rule and reign wherever we would go. But at the very same time, it's also that we would enjoy the one who made us, that we would delight as His creatures and the one who was the creator. Um, in the fall, we lost all that, right? Like we, we stopped reflecting him perfectly. It, instead, we reflected a distorted and corrupted image that brought death and pain and sorrow and death. Instead of enjoying God, we ran from him. Uh, we, we fled from his presence. We didn't love him. We didn't love his commands. We wanted to go anywhere but there. And like the, the hope of the gospel, the, the power of the gospel is that it takes people who are 
have lost, who have had the image of God corrupted and redeems and restores them in such a way that they can say with the psalmist that uh, your statutes have become my songs in the house of my sojourning. That, that your, your word has once again become my life because in it I find you. And, and to honor you and to glorify you with my life, it's, it's to reflect, one, what you created me to be, but it's also a way of giving thanks to who you've redeemed me to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it all kind of flows through that, that lens. You're, you're looking at, one, what are we created for? It's what we fell from, but it's also what we've now been restored to in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just thinking of the language of the Psalms, even the one that, that we just quote so often— speaks to this of that, uh, you know, in your presence is fullness of joy. Mm, yeah. And so what is his presence? Well, his presence is the, the manifestation of the glory yeah. of God, uh, which is why we were created. We were created for him, yeah. for his glory, um, and to share in that glory. And so, you know, I think about uh, years ago, gosh, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, John Piper had written, written this book called God is the Gospel. And in the introduction of that book, he said, uh, he gave this scenario. He said, uh, and this is kind of going back to, Bob, what you were bringing up about, um, you know, that, that as God does his work in us once we've been saved, uh, certainly we are always going to fight selfishness and making it about us. Even as believers, we're going we're gonna to wrestle with that. But there is this, there is this transference of focus between, uh, from, that it's about me and me getting glorified and about God and his glory and to be in his presence, to be and to see the glory of God. Well, in the intro of this book, he's talking about how Jesus is the essence. The glory of Christ is the essence of the gospel. And so he, t- he paints this picture of heaven and he says, if you could have heaven and everything that you dream heaven to be, the, the most beautiful picturesque landscape that you could ever imagine in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, the greatest food, the greatest relationships, the greatest, you know, all this. And he lays all these things out and he gives this big, long list. And as I'm reading it, I remember as I'm reading it as a 20-something-year-old, I'm going, oh my goodness, this is, I can't wait. This is going to be amazing. And then you get to the end of the paragraph and then he says, it says dot, 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 but Jesus weren't there. Jesus was not there in heaven. You can have all these things, but Jesus isn't there. Would you still want heaven? And that was the question he posed. And that's as far as I made it in the book. I literally, I don't remember reading anything else in the book because that shook me so much because I realized I want heaven for all the things it's going to give me. Mm. I, I don't want heaven because I want Jesus and his glory and to be with him in the fullness of his glory. And I realized God just rocked me because I realized that my, my faith was all about me. And it was all about what can God give me and my glory and my, the way that he's going to, you know, give me my best life now kind of thing, right? As opposed to, now this is all about him. Um, and so I'll quote, I'll quote Piper again, where he made this, the saying famous of, and he's really kind of taking Jonathan Edwards and reframing it. And then Edwards was taking the Westminster Confession and reframing it, which is, when we talk about to glorify God and enjoy him forever, this is what Piper said. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So as we find our deepest joy, our deepest enjoyment, our deepest satisfaction in God, then that's when he is most glorified. And so you start seeing how this glory of God and enjoyment of him forever begins to, 
to fit together. But let me ask you this, Bob, you shared something before we hit record on this thing that I thought was really significant where you, you spoke to how obedience plays into this. How, how does the glory of God, my enjoyment of him and my obedience to him, how does that all kind of tie in together? And, and you, you shared some things that I'd love for you to say again. Yeah, let me, let me comment on that, but let me piggyback on what you just said in terms of, I think why so often people, their world gets rocked when they put together what you were just talking about, Jeff, and that they realize I've actually been wanting to use God instead of love God. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. if it's, if it's not about his glory, it's for my glory. Well, now I've, I've stopped using worldly means to glorify myself and help myself, and now I'm just trying to use God to glorify me and help <laughs> the me. The end is the same. Yeah. And I've yeah. even heard somebody say, actually, you're prostituting God that way. You know, this is about him. It's not about you. Yeah. Uh, and, and that becomes very humbling, you know, when we realized it's still about me. <laughs> yeah. And I've just been trying to use God for me instead of using other things. That's but good. Uh, yeah. that's why I think that is such an eye-opening kind of thing. Yeah, um, about uh, how obedience and glorifying God uh, go together. You mentioned about how the Westminster Shorter Catechism was first written to help children. And then, of course, for us and as 20th and 21st century people, we're like, oh, man, uh, even to try to memorize a shorter catechism is a grown-up thing to do. You right. know, it's like right. <laughs> never even read the larger catechism. The shorter catechism is deep enough. And so they've invented the children's catechism, you know, for for moderns. But, you know, going back to this thing, how you know, we glorify God uh, and enjoy Him together makes me think about the children's catechism that we taught our kids. It's like, uh, who made you God? What else do you make all things? Why did God make you in all things for his own glory? Mm. How can you glorify God by loving him and doing what he commands? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, if I'm going to bring glory to Jesus, it first starts with the affections of my heart mm -hmm. that I love Jesus. It's, it's I love him because he first loved me. Mm. And then because I have loved him and because he has loved me, I want to obey him. And so... That's everything from, you know, caring about people that God tells me to care about, you know, being obedient to him with my words, with my actions, you know, with the use of my time and my money, sharing him with other people. But instead of that being this impersonal list of to-dos or a way of trying to, you know, uh, gain God's love, instead it becomes a way of wanting to, I want my, I want my Savior to look good. <laughs> yeah. In, in my eyes and in the eyes of other people, because I'm starting to reflect his character and, and doing what he commands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that becomes the, the connection between the yeah, two. Yeah, we, we said in one of the sermons, um, this, this progression that ties into what you're saying is to know God is to love him, to love him is to trust him, to trust him is to, is to submit to him, to submit to him is to obey him, and to obey him is to glorify him. Mm. And you see that kind of playing out in the Christian's life, uh, that it starts with that heart level, like, okay, I want to know him. Well, what does that mean? This is when Jesus, this was in the context of when uh, Jesus is teaching in, in John 17, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and the son, in, in the son that he sent me, that Jesus is speaking there. What is it to know him? Well, to know him is to love him. And then you play that out. What does love look like? Well, ultimately love looks like obedience. And in our obedience, we we bring him great, great glory. All right, so let me let me ask you this, Caleb. You said something before. Uh, maybe we should just record our conversation before we hit record, <laughs> because you said piece something before. Together. Yeah, piece it together. Uh, but you said something that was really, I think, that will be really helpful for our listeners. Um, 
because we, it, I think there's a, there's a temptation to think, okay, enjoyment of God mm-hmm. and how that fits into the glorification of God. But enjoyment of God is always going to be this kind of um, fun thing, right? This mm-hmm. easy thing, yeah. this, this like, well, th- that, things, that means things will go well with me right? Kind of mentality can be tempting. But you were referencing something that Luther taught way back in the day as a part of the Reformation, where he's trying to kind of help us understand uh, kind of two different frameworks. And so, yes, yeah. speak to that. So, so essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to sum this up succinctly, but if you think of it this way, kind of like what we were, we've been saying throughout this entire series, like when, when you see for the first time, the glory of God in Jesus, it flips your life upside down. It takes, the, the entire vision you have of the world is transformed. Um, Luther, the way he would talk about that is that if you think about the world, there are only really two kinds of people. There are theologians of glory, and there are theologians of the cross. And, and I want to kind of parse out what that means. Now, when he says glory, he doesn't mean it like we've been talking about it. We've been yeah. talking about glory as it comes from God or, or glory as a reflection of God. Uh, Luther, when he says glory, he's talking about uh, what we in the world perceive to be glorious. Uh, we think of kings as glorious. We, we think of glory um, as those things that we can visibly see. Uh, so if you want to know who's closest to God, we look at the person who outwardly conforms most to the standards of living that we would associate with godliness. Uh, if you want to know uh, who God loves the most, look for the person whose life is most prosperous. Uh, if you want to know um, whether or not you are traveling in the right direction according to God's plan, test your feelings and see if it feels good to you. That's a, that's a theology of glory. And, and Luther doesn't want you to escape and think that's something outside of you. He says, no, you're not just, you don't have a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. You are a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross. You live by this. Mm-hmm. It, it possesses you and drives you. And he says, in contrast, when you see the glory of God in the cross— it, it, it demands that you judge the world not by the appearance of things, not by whether or not you think you think you have faithfully obeyed God by every jot and tittle or by whether or not you're prospering or whether or not you feel good in the moment, but rather you judge it by the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering in the cross, that you look to God as he has revealed himself in his word and in the sacraments, and that is what is true of you, and that is what is true of the world and nothing else. And so a theologian of the cross becomes somebody like Paul in Philippians 3, who says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's literally going, I had all this stuff that the world would say was good. I had earthly glory, but it's nothing compared to Jesus. I would willingly give it all up. I would willingly suffer. I would willingly die because this that is that I have in Jesus is so much better. Um, and so he, it, it's a, it, it flips everything on its head. So I think about just practical things. You know, we, we have a tendency to think that, like, if I want to be near to God, I have to go chase the place where God's nearest to me is that place where I have the, the deepest emotional experience of him. That's a the, being a theologian of glory, just frankly. That's what that is. Uh, the gospel tells you where where do you know where is the God most near? It is in his, it is as he has revealed himself in the Word and in the sacraments. If you're if you're wanting to be near to God, go to the place he's told you self he's told you he has found. Um, we're, we're chasing him in places he hasn't told us to go look. Uh, that's judging by the appearance of things and not 
as a theologian of the cross. You know, Caleb, to that point, it's, it's, <clears throat> I'm thinking back to all these, you know, I did, I did campus ministry, college yeah. ministry for 13 years. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to all these conversations I had with college students. And, and I don't want to pick on college students because everybody does yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. We all do it regardless of, of age. But in that context, it, it at times felt like it was definitely more prevalent. Yeah. Which is this, the, what was more prevalent was that how many times I'd meet with a student and I'd hear something like, man, I just feel, I just don't feel near to God at all. I feel so distant from him. And I try to just very graciously, but truthfully bring up, well, um, have you, have you been in the word at all? Have you been, have you been pursuing the Lord, uh, through, through the scriptures? No, I just, I don't know. You know, the, the answer is almost always no. And then when's the last time you've been gathered with God's people? When have you been in corporate worship and, and, and been around the sacraments, taken the Lord's table, you know, and the answer is, well, I haven't been going to church, right? So I don't want to make this into a legalistic matter, but however, there is, that's the means of grace, right? That's, that's how God uh, draws us into intimacy with himself uh, most tangibly. And it may not feel like when you're gathered together in corporate worship, when you're reading the word, that God's doing this wonderful enjoyment thing in your heart, but he is, there's a work of grace being done in you. Um, and, uh, we, we definitely chase the, the experience, you know, over the faithfulness of what God's called us to. Well, I think too, there's a thing, one of the things that like being a theologian of the cross says to you is that like your standing with God is not based on your present experience or your present faithfulness, but on the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Like Luther so, would say, so if throw, you're in sitting, there too, throw in there too your present failure. Oh, exactly. Right? He, he, yeah. would, he would say to you, if you are sitting there and you feel like I have just screwed up, I have lost it all. There's nothing I like. Nothing could possibly be redeemed. Luther would say, stop looking at yourself, stop looking at what you've done, and look at Jesus. Yeah. Because that's what's true. Yeah. Um, he has said it is finished. That means it's finished. And it, it inverts, again, like that entire perception of the world. The world may, you know, take the language of cancel culture, right? Like the world may have canceled you, but Jesus was canceled for you. Mm. And, and mm. the love of God, um, in, again, in Luther's language, it's not reactive. It doesn't look for what's lovely and then love that. It, it loves what is not lovely and then creates that in which it delights. Mm. So it creates what is lovely in those who are not lovely themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's the hope of the gospel. Yeah, amen. Yeah. This is such a huge paradigm shift. I mean, going back to what Paul says in Philippians, to to take the attitude that all these things I've accomplished, whether they're you know business accomplishments, mm-hmm. family accomplishments, spiritual accomplishments, moral and ethical accomplishments, and say, oh, that's really rubbish. And it's Christ that I so value <clears throat> that that's where my joy is and that's what makes life meaningful is such a paradigm shift, but Caleb, you just pointed out how freeing that is, that it is if I don't get defined by my accomplishments, I also don't get defined by my failures, Yeah, you know, and I I get defined by the love of Christ for me, and that's hugely freeing. Yeah. And in that, we begin to understand what it means to enjoy Him, right? The freedom of, um, I'm not defined by my successes or my failures. And in that freedom, go, oh, I'm freed up to enjoy God. Yeah. Right. To where it's, it's, it's not about me. Yeah. It's about him. And in realizing the finished work of Jesus on my, on my behalf, uh, opens our eyes to the glory of Christ. And then therefore 
creates within us um, an ability to enjoy him that's um, that's profound, right? To where we begin to enjoy this this Jesus who in his uh, glorious work for us does the unthinkable. Um, and so I think about that. I will, we'll kind of wrap up here for today, but I want to hear just in closing, uh, you know, just we'll be brief on this, but when, when would, when did you start kind of, when did this start clicking for you guys? And I'll, I'll share mine story as well, but uh, what captivates you about the glory of Christ? And when did that first start clicking for you where you kind of saw his glory with eyes of faith? And, and as you said, Caleb, things started turning upside down. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, yeah, cause we all, let me, I'll say this real quick. We all kind of have that, uh, Psalm 73 mentality, right? Psalm 73 is a, is a psalm from Asaph where he's really struggling with, I look at everything around me and I see the, I see the wicked around me prospering. I see those who aren't pursuing God getting the glory of this world. And then he needs, but he has to have this, I think it's around verse 16 or 17, somewhere in there in the psalm where this shift happens. And it says, but then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And his perspective was shifted upside down to remember, oh yeah, what God's called us into is a different type of glory and enjoyment is based on him, not on what we might try to define it as. But for you, when did that kind of become real to you? I, I think for me, kind of look, kind of our eyes met and it was like, Bob, you go first. So I'll go first. Uh, <clears throat> um, I think for me there are two chapters of that. I mean, I was I was first saved and converted as a kid, uh, but then later, you know, maybe high school into college is when I really began to uh, understand more deeply what we call the doctrines of grace, and that my salvation really has been a sovereign work of God. It's not like He did eighty percent and I did twenty. And I think that was the first chapter of just seeing the glory of Christ and what He's done and realizing you know, how deeply I needed his work when I couldn't help myself. And that was the first chapter. I think the second chapter probably came uh, maybe in the late 90s as I was reading some things by John Piper. And uh, his things, like just you quoted, Jeff, of God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. And just the idea of being satisfied and it's his term of Christian hedonism, that yeah. we are made for pleasure and joy, but it's, we're supposed to find that in God. Right. And I think that was the next chapter of realizing that's what I need to lean into. And the more I leaned into that, the more I uh, realized, as I alluded to earlier, this isn't a journey where I'm supposed to be all taken up with my eventual glory, but I'm really taken with the glory of Jesus now and forever. Yeah. And it really is about him. And that's what brings brings me the greater, you know, the greater joy, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I mean, you can see all kind of human analogies in marriages or love relationships or parenting or whatever, but it's one thing to love a family member for what you get from them mm-hmm. and say, well, that's not really love. It's another thing to love them because you're, you so delight in them, it's, and, you know, and you so want what is good for them and you, you so are drawn to them because of the qualities in them, you know, and you take that and it's just multiplied by a million for Christ because there are no negatives, you know, with all yeah. these human relationships, there, there are shortcomings we have to overlook and forgive or whatever. 
in order to lean into that relationship with Jesus. It's just all upsides. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Caleb, what about you? This was going to sound like a, it maybe sounds simple, but it was it's still pretty profound for me. But like you know, I I, I grew up with a very uh, legalistic conception of who Jesus was. Yeah, like I thought of him as a taskmaster, and I thought my acceptance both with him and with others pretty much completely depended upon my present performance. Yeah, and uh, that that broke me. And I, I remember, you know, in college, I've shared the story different times. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here, but where I just, I got to college and I was just angry and bitter because I felt like I'd done what I thought I was supposed to and none of it had worked out the way it was supposed to go. And I was mad at God and I was mad at everyone else. And I thought that if God was out there, he must hate me and not like me. And it was not a, a singular moment that I could put my finger on, but rather there was a summer where it was just kind of like I began to read the scriptures uh, and the Lord kind of just began to slowly flip this switch where, where all of a sudden I began to see Jesus as he actually was. And and to realize that the person that I thought was just this cruel and different taskmaster was actually someone who was loving in a way that did not I didn't have categories for, um, who loved me and cared for me and pursued me and had d- performed for me. And I think that that summer is after right after my freshman year of college, it was kind of like in some ways that the, the realization that the glory of God was his goodness mm. and and that his provision in Jesus for sinners like me who could not, perform for themselves or do it or, or uh, accomplish um, what was necessary on their own. Mm-hmm. And and that's been something I feel like that the Lord has over the course of my life continuously been bringing me back to, that uh, my hope in my life is all in Him. And, and the good news is I'm in the hands of a Savior who loves me more than I could possibly imagine, um, even though my sin is worse than I could possibly know. Mm. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, man, what y'all are sharing resonates so much with me and probably so many of our listeners. I mean, I... I um, I'll just briefly say that my story is very similar. I, I, the way I would frame it is in my life was um, if we if we use very kind of simple definitions of mercy and grace, and say that mercy is God withholding what uh, what I deserve, and grace is Him giving what I don't deserve. Um, I lived for a very many years, in, in, similar to you, Caleb, uh, into college, believing the mercy of God, but not the grace of God. If that makes sense. Um, and, and certainly not believing the, the love of God. And so my, my, my conception of God was very much that he's, he's being merciful with me. He's holding off on the wrath that I should deserve because of my sin, but he doesn't really like me. Mm. And he, he just tolerates me and he's constantly frustrated with me. And that played into how I performed religiously. And, and then when I didn't perform religious, religiously, and and went into irreligion or immorality. Then I then I just felt like, well, now now he's not even merciful with me. And it was just this very very much uh, as you were saying, Kayla, very very performance driven. And uh, it was it was in college for me. It was my sophomore year in college where uh, I would say the Lord opened my eyes. Um, yes, to help me understand what mercy is and what it isn't. But w- man, he opened my eyes to grace and love, to the grace he has for me in Jesus and the love that he has for me through Christ. Um, and it blew me away. And I began to see the glory of Jesus in ways that uh, 
that just, yeah, changed my life, changed my world. Um, my kids will tell you probably, I hope they would tell you that um, dad prays with me every night when he puts me to bed and he always starts the same way. And I hope they've picked up on it because I start every prayer with God, thank you. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your love for us. Um, and that comes out of a prayer of my own heart where for, for a long, long time, I just didn't, I didn't see or believe that he was really this gracious and loving. Um, and so maybe you're listening um, wherever you are right now, and that's, maybe that's where you find yourself. You find yourself in this place of um, perhaps not seeing the fullness of the glory of God and his character and who he is. Uh, and uh, as the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, uh, that he has, the, the light who, uh, the God who's shown light into the darkness has shown light into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God. And here it is in the face of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so where do we most see the glory of God? We see it in Jesus. And, um, and so I hope and pray that for all you who are listening, that that would be true, that you would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as you believe upon him and rest in him and his finished work. He loves you more than you can imagine. He's more gracious than you could ever fathom. And he's merciful beyond your wildest imagination uh, all through Jesus. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll do this again with our next series coming up that uh, we have Easter coming up, Easter services and Holy Week and all that. Uh, which will be fantastic. Uh, but then we'll start a new series after Easter on the book of Acts, part two of Acts. We started last year uh, with part one, made it through eight chapters of Acts. So we'll pick up in Acts chapter nine this year and carry through several chapters there. And then we'll do another Digging Deeper podcast at the end of that series. So until then, we look forward to, to what God's gonna be doing in your life and pray and hope that you will uh, rejoice and enjoy God as the one who is so glorious in your life.